Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning at WorkInSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. My goal today, to write the shortest intro to a podcast interview ever. Dr. Bill Sutton joins me today, and we have an incredible discussion ahead of you. It's meaty, there's a ton of info in here, life-changing kind of stuff, and I'm not one for hyperbole, I really mean that. Dr. Sutton is synonymous with the sports industry. 36 years in sports academia at University of South Florida, Ohio State, UMass, Robert Morris, University of Central Florida, meaning he has taught, trained, mentored, and placed quite literally hundreds of the people thriving in the sports industry today. But he's not just a classroom guy, writing research papers and repeating the same old axioms. He's been a VP in the NBA working directly under David Stern. We'll talk about that coming up. And he's consulted with various pro teams, ranging from the Orlando Magic, Phoenix Suns, Miami Dolphins, Philadelphia 76ers, Tampa Bay Lightning, and the New York Mets. He's been out there doing it. Everyone goes to Doc Sutton for advice and insight. He's honest, straightforward, knowledgeable, and I don't think I've ever met someone so committed to helping the people he believes in. Time for me to shut up. Here's Doc Sutton. Dr. Sutton, thank you so much for joining me. This is an exciting conversation I've wanted to have for a long, long time. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. So let's jump into things. Outside of your illustrious career in academia, your professional background is in the sales and marketing side of the sports business. Mm -hmm. In 2020, no sector of our industry was more affected than sales. You know, we saw on our job board, we had about 12,000 jobs that were connected to sales in some way, shape, or form, and that dropped down into the hundreds last year. And we just watched this whole thing evaporate. It makes sense. We don't need to get into the whole logic behind it. But you're on the front lines working with a lot of teams and leagues and consulting and talking. You know what's happening in the industry. Do you believe sports sales jobs are rebounding? And what is your overall outlook as we jump into 2021? Rebounding and rosy. And really whatever, what's happening right now is that everybody has plans to add and they're just waiting for permission to add. And permission, unfortunately, relates to bodies in the stands. You know, what percent of capacity can you have? I mean, you know, there's no sense in hiring group salespeople right now because you can't have a group. Right. And so, you know, if you're limited to 20% of your attendance, you're struggling to take care of your season ticket holders. And, you know, I'm excited I'm going to go to opening day in Pittsburgh and the Pirates are at 50%. Yep. So we'll see. And as long as I, th I think as long as we go through this next section without having any blowback, you know, any any spikes, any issues with attendance, I think by the fall we'll be we'll be pretty much back to normal. I think you can anticipate uh, an NFL crowd, a college football crowd and an NBA crowd next year of at least 75 to 80 percent capacity, if not full. That's great. I was talking with Callie Franklin from uh, NYCFC in the MLS, and she kept saying, she's like, if we're not hiring, we're not growing. And it sounds like what you're saying is there's that desire. They want to be hiring. These teams want to be growing. They're ready and primed to go. Mm -hmm. It's just looking for that green light, right? It's exactly what it is. Yeah. 
So we so often hear the term analytics, and so many of us are preconditioned to think player side, right? We think money ball. We think that kind of fun yeah. and sexy side of Oakland days and that and whatever. But in today's world, isn't it the business analysts, the revenue optimization, optimization specialists representing one of our industry's really true growth sectors? No question. And I prefer to call it business intelligence. I like that too. That sounds better. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the interesting thing for me is, you know, I've taught for eh, 35, 36 years, and I've produced three general managers, none of which I could really take credit for. <laughs> they were former athletes and fortuitous things happened for them. So the odds of that happening aren't real great. I mean, yeah. you, know, you go to, a, you go to a, a graduate school or a business school, you're not learning the spin rate on a curveball. You're not learning how to evaluate talent. You're not learning how to do any of the things that a general manager would do. On the other hand, if you can do, if you can understand algorithms and you can understand pricing models and you create demand models, there's a, there's a future for you. I remember when, you know, an analytics department was usually one, maybe two. Now it's yeah. eight, maybe 12. So a lot more opportunity now and a lot more integration. I think when, when, when I really saw the analytics or the business intelligence start, it was on the ticketing side and that's where it stayed. It was okay. How, what can what can we change the price to? Uh, do we add more premium? What do we do? And now it, and I, and I would give credit to the Orlando Magic. They were the first group that I saw that used business intelligence as a thread, and they ran it through the entire organization. They looked at sponsorships. They looked at parking. They looked at concessions. They looked at merchandising, and that's what really it is right now. I mean, it business intelligence needs to be a thread that runs through the organization and everybody can touch it and everybody can give feedback. And you know when business intelligence is successful because the people that it impacts, the different department heads, will go to BI and they'll say, hey, can you guys figure out this for us? Or yeah. can you do this rather than just taking data and looking at it? Once it's reciprocal, that's when you really got a, a strong department. So is the sports industry behind every other industry? Because it feels to me from the outside, well, not from the outside, but it feels to me a little bit. My wife works in more traditional business, Fortune mm -hmm. 500 type company. They've been doing this for decades, right? right? Yeah. And it feels like in some ways the sports industry is waking up to this this concept. Why in your view does it take so, I mean, this is a, this is a multi-billion dollar global industry, the sports world, the sports industry. Why, why do you think it took a while for us to start saying data should drive decisions and that thread should go through an entire organization? Uh, you know, Brian, I would say one of the things is, is how hiring changed. I mean, usually, you know, if you look at 20 years ago, if you weren't in the sports industry, you weren't getting hired. Mm -hmm. to have another job in the sports industry. You weren't, hired, you, you weren't getting hired at other, anything other than entry-level position. Now, when you say, I'm looking for a BI person, you know, you look at Amazon, you'll look at Google, you'll look at different places, because you can teach people the sport part of it if they have the basic core knowledge. So it's yeah. taken us a while to have leaders in place that accepted that as a way of doing business, that you, you didn't have to understand baseball to work in baseball. You didn't have to understand basketball to work in basketball. But if you understood the business elements and you could apply them to basketball, that was the key. 
I think it's fascinating too. It's so many GMs across all sports now have a background in economics, statistics, other types of fields. It's not just the old grizzled scout that's been sitting on a bench watching high school games for 30 years. You know, it's like there's a different way of building careers and hiring, like you're, to, to your point exactly, that you're seeing these high-level positions that are more rooted in things other than player side or using different skills to get to the player side. Sure. When I When I worked at the NBA – we would always talk about a multi, a two-dimensional model, the art of it or the science of it. Okay. How to, how to blend those things together. So there's an art of sales, but there's a science of sales. There's yeah. an art of intelligence, but there's also a science of intelligence. Yeah. And the art of, like, when we're talking about BI, the art of BI is being able to translate it so that everybody understands it and make it meaningful for, for people. And when you find a BI person that is, what I call, I call it bilingual. They can speak stats and speak English. <laughs> I like that. You, you understand what they're talking about. Yeah. And that's, you know, you understand what they're talking about. And when you understand what they're talking about, that's what makes it work. Yeah. That's where we get back to that whole concept of everybody's in sales, right? Because right. if you are a data person, you still need to sell that information to somebody above you and make Absolutely. them do something with it. You still need to be able to communicate if you're in marketing or if you're in any other roles, you're constantly selling. I mean, no matter where you are, right? Yeah. And if, if there's one weakness in the, in the BI people that I, some of the BI people I've seen, it's their, it's their ability to say, here's what I found and here's what it means. And here are some alternatives that you can consider. Yeah. And I don't, I don't see that often enough. You know, in the old days, I would see, here's the numbers. Yeah. And I'd ask a question, well, what do the numbers say? Well, here's the numbers. And yeah. there wasn't enough understanding of what they were doing to go deeper and explain to people what it meant for them. And that's, that's been a big tipping point. I like that. I like that concept of being bilingual, speaking yeah. data and speaking English is great. Uh, so I've often talked on the podcast a lot about how it's so important to continually innovate and adapt. And it's something we talk with young people about all the time. It's something we talk to with people that are looking to transition to the sports industry, this attitude of uh, innovating and adapting. Mm -hmm. When I first started in the industry, social media wasn't a thing. We didn't really talk about analytics, data different decision models, esports. These are all new things we all need to get on board with and adapt to. Many didn't exist. Many are now now are common. Now they're massive. Uh, while I don't expect you to predict the future, that would be awesome if you could. But um, what do you kind of see as you kind of look at the industry now and you see where we're headed and where things are going? Are there certain aspects you think will develop and grow and become more prominent in the next five years, let's say? Yeah. Um, you know, my, my SBJ column this month. I, Which I, I love. Had, I had my, my working title for it was the death of the phone room. And I didn't mean the death of calling. I meant the death of a physical room. Yeah. And, you know, for th the last three or four years, I was calling for get rid of the landlines. Nobody calls on landlines. Nobody answers landlines. And selling is not an auditory business. It's visual. It's experiential. And it's auditory. And if you're going to sit in a room and call 100 people and hopefully talk to eight. There's got to be a better way of doing business in 2021 than that. But you're, you're also working for people that that's how they grew up and that's how they were successful. So you have to understand that and you have to get them to overcome their own history mm -hmm. and, and accept different ways of doing things. So when I talk to people, I say, listen, 
I'll walk into somebody's phone room and I'll say, hey, tell me what, describe to me what I'm going to experience if I come to one of your events. And they'll start trying to describe it to me. Yeah. And I'll let them go on for two or three minutes and I'll stop them and I'll say, whoa. I said, you know, it'll probably take you 15 minutes to explain to me what I'm going to see. You don't have 15 minutes. I'm not going to stay on the phone with you for 15 minutes. Right. So the model I'm advocating now is, hey, go out and shoot me a video. Shoot me yeah. a two, two and a half minute video and say, this is what it looks like. And then maybe close the video with showing me some seats that are open and say, I'd like to invite you to a game. Here's three sets of seats. Where would you like to sit? And then call me or then text me and then follow up. I, it's just so much more real. Yeah, it's tangible. Yeah. I remember, I remember yeah. back in my NBA days, you know, we have our league marketing meetings. And one year I was taxed with the idea of getting the couch potatoes off the couch. <laughs> oh, that's a fun challenge. Yeah. And so I went to Miami, which I always thought, I always thought he did a great job of game entertainment. And I filmed a video. All right. Yeah. I filmed a video of everything you wouldn't see if you were sitting in your living room watching the game on TV. Because let's face it, you're always going to see the game better on television, particularly yeah. given the technology of television and the home theater experience and everything else. But that's not why you go. You go to experience something. So I did this whole video. And then my session was at, I think, 9 o'clock in the morning. We were in Phoenix. So I came out, and Stern's in the audience, and Adam's in the off. They're all in the audience. Yeah. And I come walking out. I've got a son's jersey on. I've got a hat on backwards. I'm wearing <laughs> blue jeans, and I'm carrying a six-pack of beer. Please tell I, me there's a picture of this somewhere. I, I want this. <laughs> somewhere. Okay, good. And then, um, so I have, a, I have a, a, a recliner and a big screen TV set up on the stage. Yeah. So I go and I pop, I sit in the chair and I pop my feet up and I turn on the TV. And then I have somebody call me on my cell phone. You say, Hey, I got two tickets to the Suns game tonight. You want to go? I go, why would I go? I said, yeah. I'm sitting in my house. I'm in my recliner. I got a 70 inch TV. I said, I'll have my shoes on. I go to the bathroom barefoot and <laughs> I don't have to drive anywhere. I ordered a pizza and guess what? Beer is $4.99 a six pack at my house. And I mm -hmm. popped beer. And then I got up and I stopped. And I said, this is what you're up against. Yeah. And to get me to go, and then I showed this video. And the video I had, you know, I talked to the dance team. I talked to the mascot. I talked to kids who played that afternoon on the court, their court mm -hmm. of dreams. Yeah. And I had this kid come off the court. I go, hey, tell me about this experience. He looks at me and goes, ah, it was only the best day of my life. See, all the things like that that you don't ever have any idea of. Mm-hmm. That's what you're selling. So I interviewed people in the stands. I interviewed fathers and sons, mothers and mothers and sons, fathers and daughters, group of people from work. And I talked to them, why are you out here tonight? What made you come? And they all explained to me in their own words about how great it was to be at a sporting event, experience with your friends and family, and create memories. Yeah. Well, that's what I, that's what my video was. And so now coming out of the pandemic, guess what? Those are all the things we want again. We can still watch yeah. better at home. But we don't want to be at home. We've been at home for 11 months. Now we want to go and we want to have fun and we want to experience something. So that's exactly it, right? Yeah. And that's you're, you're selling the experience. You're not selling wins and losses. You're yeah. selling the experience. Last weekend, I was at Oklahoma State, my alma mater, and I went to the Oklahoma State Vanderbilt Baseball Series. Okay. And I went to three baseball games and I loved every second of it. Yeah. And it was something I didn't get to do in 2020. 
And I just, you know, it was just a real deja vu moment. These were things that are important to me and I got to do them and it felt good. You know, yeah. I'm vaccinated. It felt good. Every summer I used to go to the Cape Cod League baseball games because uh, I live, grew up in Massachusetts. Yeah. And that to me is like still one of my like most pure memories of, of sports, like sitting in the grass, watching a game with these elite young prospects that are playing with a wood bat for some of them the first time. And it just felt so pure. Didn't it? And that is, those are real experiences. Those are things you can't just get. You no. can't fabricate. They don't exist anywhere else. No. I remember getting off a ferry at one of the one of the towns getting a lobster roll and walking into the game. And I thought it was a great yes. Oh, yeah. Now I want a lobster roll, too. Uh, okay, so we'll transition here a little bit. 36 years of experience in higher ed. Mm -hmm. uh, you're retired now from the college classroom experience, so you can speak freely and honestly and, and sure. you know, contradict <laughs> other programs. Uh, the program you founded at USF, the Sports and Entertainment Management MBA program, I think is a little different than most having a co-op element and focusing on students gaining real world experience, which is something we emphasize a ton here on this show. It's like, what can you do? Have skills, have experiences. That's what's going to translate you and make you stand out in the industry. I've hired somebody from the program, Laura Wilhelm, who you know, uh, is a staff member on our team, phenomenal graduate of your program, learned industry best practices, had experience working with the Tampa Bay Lightning while she was in school. She was ready to contribute from day one. Matter of fact, she was prepared to dominate by day one, right? It wasn't this huge, massive learning curve. She had been in the trenches. She knew what to do. I'm not just saying this to, to, to laud Laura, who will probably be embarrassed after hearing this. I do want to say, though, why is this style of education the exception and not the rule in sports academia? I mean, how have we not translated this fact to the colleges and universities to say experienced focused, not just the classroom. What are we missing? How are we not getting there? Well, one of the things, I mean, having have been an academic for 35 years, you know, you're not promoted or recognized by the dean or by the provost for helping kids get jobs or creating unique learning experiences. Unfortunately, ah, that's crazy. Unfortunately, you're, you're rewarded for writing an article. Yeah. And, you know, I've written enough academic articles and pro articles. I remember I wrote an article one time for SBJ and I, I posted on LinkedIn and everywhere else. And I had over 10,000 reads. Okay. Yeah. When I look at everything I've ever written in academia, with the exception of my textbook, and if I added them all together, I wouldn't have 10,000 reads. Yeah. So the system's wrong. It's the system's backwards. You know, when I got the naming rights done for uh, the Vinnick program, Mm -hmm. And it was a multi-million dollar deal over 14 years. I asked the provost and I already had tenure and I was already a full professor. So I had nowhere to go. I said, so if I was coming up for tenure, what would this be worth? And he said, one article. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. The whole, the whole None. academic system yeah. makes sense. So, you know, I look at my academic career pre and post NBA. So I started off at Robert Morris and I taught for four years. I went to Ohio State for four years. So yeah. I've done it for eight years. And I, all of a sudden, one day, I just one of those discover me moments, I looked in the mirror and I go, hey, do you know what the hell you're talking about? I mean, you're yeah. telling these kids to do this, 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 and this, and you haven't done it. So how do you know this works? And so I, I, went, I met with Buffy. I talked to Bernie Mullen and Bernie says, go talk to Buffy. And I talked to Buffy. And Buffy had me interview for a job with Del Wilburn Associates, which was a sport marketing company. At the time, they did all the marketing rights for the NHL, but mm -hmm. they had other things as well. So I decided I was going to leave academia 
and I went and worked in the sport marketing company for three years. And I worked on uh, all kind of projects for Mazda. I worked on the Greyhound track operators. I worked on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I worked at Louisiana mm-hmm. Tech University. I did a lot of different things. And at the end of three years, I said, okay, I do know what I'm talking about. Because a lot yeah. of stuff I did, I did based upon what I understood. So then I went to UMass. And UMass was great. And I started this experiential learning. We had courses where we would do experiential learning. Like I would throw kids in a van and we would drive from Amherst to Cleveland and do <laughs> for the lumberjacks. Or we drive to Philadelphia yeah. to study for the, the Sixers. But this is this was important to me. We had to do experiential learning. You had to do something more than the classroom. Mm-hmm. All right. Then I saw that start to take. And I saw the, the reaction the students had. And I saw the success they had. And we would do little things like we would, I, I'd go to the athletic department and say, give me one of the baseball games. And we take over one of the baseball games. We sell sponsorships and we have a kid's day and we do everything to try and show them you do these things. Here's how you market your sport. Then I had the opportunity to go to the NBA and work for Commissioner Stern. And so I took my sabbatical from UMass. And, you know, I was David's basically intern for a year. But I got to do everything. I get to help start Team Bo. I started the NBA job fair. I started Stern Safaris. Everything that I had an instinct to do. We did. And you know what? Team Bo was right. The NBA job fair was right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole consulting with the teams and helping them improve was right. And so I, that was a real rewarding, validating experience for me. But I learned a lot, too. Oh, yeah. You know, starting in one rule, no surprises. And no surprises meant no matter how bad the news is, you better deliver it to me. Yeah. And I still remember one one. <laughs> You know, you knew you were in trouble on Sunday night after the Sopranos if you got a phone call. <laughs> uh, I only got one. But I got to tell you, I tossed and turned for three or four hours after that. Mm-hmm. And every subsequent week, I wasn't comfortable till about 15 minutes after the Sopranos ended. Because he always watched the Sopranos on Sunday night. And yeah. if you were going to if you did something that he didn't like or he needed some information or he heard something, you were going to get a call. That's when you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it. So, you know, I I took all that to heart. I learned a lot of things. Then I went to UCF with Richard Lapchick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we started these things. I did all these class projects. I was really big in experiential learning when I came back. And so my marketing class, basically, we had, I divided the class into five groups. We'd have these five projects. And then I would would use the funds from the projects to take the students every year to a different city as kind of a networking trip. And let them experience some things. So uh, that was a really good experience. And I liked what I was doing at UCF and I was real happy there. I got a call one day from uh, Ralph Wilcox, who was the provost at USF, who I've known for years. And I talked to Steve Griggs, who had been at the Magic when I was in Orlando and I was at the Lightning. And Ralph said, come on down. I want to pick your brain about starting a program at USF. I said, all right. So I get down there and I start talking to Ralph. And he starts laying out to me this, this sponsorship that the, the Vinnick group, Jeff Vinnick and Todd Lywick and Steve Griggs had gone to the university saying, mm-hmm. hey, we want to create a sport business program that's different than others and unique. And we want the kids to be working at the Lightning and taking the issues that the Lightning face and take them back to the classroom and then take what they learned at the classroom and bring it back to the Lightning. Yeah. We start talking about all this. And it sounds great to me. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, I said, he said, wow, what do you think? I said, man, that's a great gig. He goes, would you be interested? I said, I'd be crazy if I wasn't. Right. So I decided to go there and 
my goal was what I had seen over the years were was two things that bothered me. One was placement, you know, and I've always had the philosophy that if you give me two years out of your life, you know, you're, you're committed, you're putting yourself in my hands for two years, mm-hmm. whether it's you or your parents or whoever it is, you're giving me two years of your life. I have a moral obligation to do everything I can to help you get a job. That's me. That's where I came from on this. And the other thing I thought about was I've had kids take, you know, have a hard road taking a job because they're in debt. Yeah. I wanted to minimize the debt. So the debt and placement. And so that was my goal. So with the co-op model and, you know, being in Tampa was phenomenal. I mean, you couldn't do this program in, small, small, non-urban markets that have limited opportunity. I mean, you could do a, a, you could do a, oh, a mini version of it, but you couldn't do it to the extent I could do it at. So I could have somebody right. in and I could tell them in a year, they're going to be exposed to the NHL, Major League Baseball, the NFL, the Sports Commission, a mm-hmm. professional golf tour, felt entertainment, uh, and then whatever the sports commission happened to bring in, which was either the college football playoff, the Super Bowl, yeah, um, the women's final four, the uh, all kind of different things. So we were able to create this unbelievable experiential learning program. And then when kids left, they had actually worked. So they weren't walking out of an internship. They'd been there for a year and in some cases, two years. Mm-hmm. They walk in with really valued experience. If they were in sales, they had already sold for a year. Right. They knew how to sell. If they were in event management, they'd manage some serious events. Mm-hmm. If they were in digital media, they'd seen some serious assets and work with them. They were in sponsor activation. They actually activated sponsorships. Yeah. So that was the model. And so we had a program that started in 2012. And when I left in or when I left in 2000, the end of 19, it had gone from nowhere to the fifth rank program in the world and the f- no, fourth rank program in the world and third in the U.S. And That's the amazing. two programs I was trailing were Ohio U and UMass, and they both had 50 plus years on me. Yeah. And I was fine with that. I'd been at UMass. I knew it was a great program, and I'd yeah. always admired the Ohio program for being first and doing a lot of innovative things. But I'd been in Amherst, and I'd been in Athens, and I knew the challenges yeah. they faced that I didn't have to face in Tampa. My challenge in Tampa was, what's USF? I never heard of that before. And where, mm-hmm. where, where is that? And why is it, why should I go there instead of Ohio or UMass? And right. so it really, you know, when I left, you know, students would interview for the three programs and they would pick the program that was best for them. But we got our share of really good students and really good program. Yeah, it's clear. And I want to lean into that concept you brought up earlier about placement, because I do think that's one of the most interesting things those of us in this world have to deal with is helping guide somebody towards where they fit, where their Mm skill set lines up, where their their personality lines up, where they're culturally a right match. You guys at USF were were ridiculously effective at placing people. Your students graduated and got jobs and were doing things that they were really into and enjoyed. What was your kind of approach to finding that right career fit for people and for each student and then getting them set up in places where they could grow and, and thrive and succeed. Okay. Well, this is my non-traditional background where I was never just an academic. Yeah. So even when I left the NBA, I had my own consulting practice. So I was working with about nine or 10 organizations throughout the United States. And 
I would see the talent they had. I would see what those students, those people had to do in their role. And I could replicate that in my classroom. Yeah. Through different projects. But the, at the other hand, you know, I understood, I understood the boss. I understood what they needed. And whenever there's a vacancy, they said, Hey, do you have anybody? And I always did. So for the seven years I was there, we had a hundred percent placement, which is ridiculous. That's no, crazy. It's you know, great. But I got to tell you, Brian, again, I wasn't writing articles and I told them yeah. when I came in there, if you want me to build this program, I said, I don't want to be evaluated like a traditional faculty member. I'm going to yep. do this, this, and this, if that's good enough for you, then I'll come. And so, you know, you place a hundred percent of students. When you walk in on, we had a graduation ceremony every year, we had a brunch and the parents would come. And you know, when, when, when you can look a parent in the eye and, and know that you did what you said you were going to do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a big, it's a big feeling. I remember one, one of the, one of the highlights of my whole 36 years is that uh, I had a student and I'll even name him Marshall Williams came to me as a referral from a friend of mine. I used to work for in Stillwater, Oklahoma. So Marshall was a high school quarterback, played at Stephen F. Austin, transferred to Oklahoma state, got hurt, never played. So he was working at the Stillwater country club to pay his way through school. My friend said, Hey, you got to meet this guy. So I come down and meet this guy. And I got to tell you, you think about the stereotypical Texas, Texas high school quarterback, Mm -hmm. foot five, good looking guy. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. I said, wow, I could, I know I could place this guy. Yeah. (laughs) Sitting with him and we're talking, I'm telling him about grad school. And he goes, well, where do you see me fitting? He goes, I said, honestly, I said, I could see you working in sales for the Cowboys. Yeah. And so that was, that was our conversation before he came to grad school. So as he went through, I'm saying to myself, you know what? I nailed this one. This guy's going to work for the Cowboys. Mm -hmm. So I reach out to my friends, Chad, Chad Estes and Doug Dawson in Dallas. I said, listen, I said, I got a guy that will be perfect for you. Yeah. And so, you know, I had him start interviewing and doing different things. And, um, you know, then I said, can I bring him down and we can meet? And so I brought him down there and he interviewed and we were staying for the game on Sunday. It was a, no, it was a Thursday night game. So we were staying yeah. for the game on Thursday night and we invited Marshall's dad and his brother to come to the game. So we're up in a suite with me, Marshall, his dad and his brother. And Doug comes in and offers him a job. Yeah. What a moment. Yeah. I'm emotional now just thinking about it because I saw that. But I knew, you know, and I don't expect a lot of people to know because they haven't done the things I've done. So sometimes just an unfair comparison because I've had advantages that other faculty members haven't had. So speed forward to my retirement and my good friend Todd Lywicky now is running the Kraken. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. Okay. So we start having conversations. He goes, hey, we want to build a program like we had at USF at Seattle U. Okay. I said, all right. I said, I'll help you build it. I said, I want to come. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go work again, but I said, I'll help you build it. So I'm working with them right now. And we made an announcement last week that not just the Kraken, the Kraken, the Mariners, the Seahawks, Mm -hmm. the Storm, the Sounders, Oakview Group and Climate Pledge Arena are all Mm -hmm. the founding partners of this program. Each one is going to offer three of those residencies I had in Tampa. And the crux of the program is to to face the diversity challenge that we're going to try and use this these opportunities to attract 
indigenous people, African-Americans, women, Hispanics, and, and other underrepresented groups in athletics and get them to come get an MBA, work in one of these teams while they're there yeah. and see what we can do, see if we can really make an impact. So same model. That's amazing. Seattle is a great, mar- a great market. Yeah, I was there for 10 years. I was the news director at Fox Sports Northwest and I've covered all those teams and it's a great sports market. It is highly unheralded and we've done a lot of work with Seattle U in the past. They have a great program on sports sustainability too. Like they've really branched out into areas that I think are the future and the fact that you're going that route with them too, I think should be very, very exciting for them as well. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And, uh, you know, not only am I working with Todd on this, but I'm working with Tim. Yeah. (laughs) There's nobody like Tim. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was the prototype for the Pied Piper before there was a Pied Piper. Yeah. <laughs> and I had on uh, Allison Bickford, who's the director of corporate partnerships for the Kraken, just a couple yeah. weeks on the show. And she was raving about it again, too. I mean, they were yeah. really doing some special things up there. It's amazing. So I'm excited about it. It's going to be fun. You should be. Uh, so you're a mentor. It's funny, as I interview people throughout the industry for the show and other parts of my job, um, Everybody seems to be somewhat in some way connected to you. I mean, I feel like you've been a mentor yeah. to so many people in the industry, which I think is awesome. It's amazing. It's incredible. You should be very proud of that fact. As I you look back, they could play the Kevin Bacon game with me. They, they could. They absolutely could. I feel like everybody I've talked to is like two degrees away from you in some way, shape, or form. Um, but as you look back through your career, let's flip this conversation around a little bit. Who would you say have been your mentors? Who have been the people that have kind of you've learned from and set you up for success? This is going to sound strange, but I think my biggest mentor was a book. And it was Vec is in Rec. Okay. Oh, I know it well. Yeah, go ahead. And so I always wanted to meet Bill Vec, and it's one of the saddest things in my life. I never got to meet Bill Vec. Okay. I had to meet Mike, and I got to go to a baseball game with Mike, which was one of the highlights of my life. But I, I never met Bill Vec, but I read Vec is in Rec, and everything he was so far ahead of his time he wrote this in 1962 and he talked about all these different things and he'd say things like you know if baseball is not a civic monument you have to you have to market and you have to sell it you can't sell wins and losses yeah and he's saying all this thing in 1962 nobody's thinking about this in 1962 hey you got a baseball game come out watch a game watch teams play yep. so he's thinking about all these things and you know all promotions and all these things, bat day and things that have ne- had never happened before. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, he understands people. Yeah. He, understand, he is every man and he understands what's important to every man. And so if you just follow this guy's principles, you're going to be successful. So a lot of the stuff I preach is stuff that I learned or inferred from what I read. And then obviously when I went to work for David Stern, I mean, that was... He became a pretty good guy to learn from. Yeah. And, you know, and I tell people all the time, my interview, when I was in New York, the interview, he's very, you know, I had sent this cold letter. Okay. Cold letter. Mm-hmm. saying I had a sabbatical coming up. I'd like to come work for him. And by the way, here's three things I think are wrong with the NBA that I could come and fix. <laughs> I love the yeah. aggressiveness. So people said to me, were you out of your mind? I go, no, that's just me. And yeah. I said, you know, would I do it again now? I said, probably not, but. I did it. And so he calls me, you know, I, I, he calls up and asks me to come to New York to talk to him. So I go and I walk into his office. I walk in the conference room and I'm waiting for him to come in. He walks in, he looks at me and he goes, and, and I can't even describe the amount of sarcasm, but it's, 
Hello, Professor. Put <laughs> <laughs> back on your heels a little bit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He yeah. wanted. He, he wanted you to know who the alpha in the room was. There was no question. He goes, I only have one question I like to ask you, Professor. And I said, what is it? And he goes, What's my job? And Brian, I got to tell you, I knew the. I knew what the answer wasn't. But I had no idea what the answer was. And yeah. I'm usually really good on my feet. And I'm thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. And I have nothing. I mean, I can't even I can't even bullshit them. I have nothing. <laughs> I, said, I start off and go, obviously you're commissioner of the NBA. He looks at me, raises his eyebrow, and goes, Obviously. <laughs> you don't know. And I go, Well, why don't you tell me? He goes, I'm an investment banker. I have 30 clients. My job is to increase the value of their investments. Do you understand that, Professor? And I said, Crystal. Yep. And then we had a conversation after that, and I ended up going to work for him. But I mean. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, that's his job. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, that's exactly what that job is. Yep. yep. But, he knows exactly who is who he reports to. Yes, he does. Yeah. Yes, he does. And it wasn't you in that moment. <laughs> no, I remember, and he was so intuitive. Like we were having a talk one day and he goes, do the same people go to every game? And I said, no. He goes, how do you know that? I said, I just know that. He goes, but you don't know that, know that. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I don't know that, but I know people share their tickets. He goes, okay. He goes, go get the, go find the best photographer you can and go to the garden and I want you to go to three different games and I want you to pick out three seating sections and I want you to take a picture of those seating sections every game for three games. We're going to blow the pictures up and we're going to look at them and we're going to look to see how many people are different. I okay. said, all right. Now that might sound unscientific, but it works. Yeah. So we have these big, I mean, 20 by 20 blow ups. Yep. And we're looking at him and he goes, well, that guy's new or that guy was there before. And we're looking mm -hmm. at him and everything like that. And so it's just his way of understanding that people shared tickets. And then he wanted to know, okay, so how many games do they go to? And so we started doing some market research and surveys to find out the average person that has a 40 game, 41 game plan goes to 20 to 25 games. Okay. And then shares tickets and, and does whatever he is. Now I would tell you that he's a broker, you know, whether you're a formal broker or not, yeah. You're not going to go to every game, so you're going to sell tickets. Now, the funny part about that story is he said, go find the best photographers in the world. I went down to the Time Life building to Sports Illustrated. Yeah. I came back and I said, I got a photographer. He goes, where did you go? He, I said, the Time Life building. I got something from Sports Illustrated. He goes, oh, you don't know anything. He goes, the best photographers in the world work for me. They're in NBA <laughs> entertainment. So he used it as a learning lesson again. I mean, he was always <laughs> teaching. Yeah. When I say the best, I'm talking internally. Yeah. Because yeah. I hire the best. That yeah. was, yeah. He was letting it be known too. I love it. So, okay. This dovetails perfectly then uh, into this conversation on leadership. Cause it's something that really fascinates me as well. One of my mentors, my a former boss told me and used to say all the time that his job was to hire people smarter than him who could do things better than him in areas he was weak. And I, it's kind of stuck with me forever. Like I, whenever I hire, I look for people that have skills that are different than mine and that are likely have a higher ceiling, you know, and I, and I, you have to be, to me, you have to be willing to allow other people to be 
better than you at times. That's totally fine. That's great. You know, you have to be able to, to handle that from a self-conscious standpoint, from your own confidence standpoint. Yeah. So you've worked with teams across the entire spectrum of the sports industry. In your view, what makes a good leader? How would you define it? And, and how does that directly relate to organizational success? How important is leadership as you really break it down within an organization? Well, it's critical, but it's critical at two levels. It's critical at the president level and it's critical at the owner level. Yeah. Okay. The owner level, the most successful owners I've seen are the owners that are so successful that they hire talent and they let the talent do their job. Yep. And they're not involved in the day to day of the, of the team. Okay. They're not, they're, they're informed. They can discuss, but they don't make the decisions. They trust the people that they hired to make the decision. Yeah. All right. At the presidential level, it's exactly what you said. Am I comfortable hiring people better than me? Mm-hmm. You know? And if I'm not, then I got a problem. So you look at, you look at teams that have had a lot of turnover. And there's like one that doesn't have a name in the nation's capital that had a lot of turnover. Now yeah. they've brought in a new president, and this guy is phenomenal. Yeah, night and day difference, um, light years difference, and he's attracting a lot of talent and getting a lot of good people in there, and he's going to be very, very successful. Mm-hmm. Unlike his predecessor, right? But you have to you have to be comfortable knowing that people are better than you. And you know, one of the best people I've ever seen as a leader is Scott O'Neill, and. I worked with Scott at the NBA and I've worked for Scott as a consultant. And the thing about Scott is that he wants the best talent there is. Yeah. His talent is the trump card. And if you have the best talent, you're going to win. So, you know, oftentimes you'll interview someone, you know, especially if you're not in a real good situation and you'll say, yeah, you know what? I'd like to hire this person, but they won't stay. And, you know, so I don't want to do this all over again. So I want to hire this person, I'll hire somebody else. And Scott's philosophy was if they stay for six months and they make me better than I was, then that's the hire I need to make. Yeah. And it's woe on me if I don't want to, you know, do it again. And maybe, maybe my next search will be easier because this person made it better. There's not a lot of people that think like that. Mm-hmm. But you surround yourself with the best possible talent. And then you stay hands off and let them do their job. Because if you did your job and you hired the best talent, you shouldn't second guess your own people. And when you have it, we see organizations that, and I've worked with some over the years that second guess their people and are involved in day to day. And, you know, people feel they're, they don't have the opportunity to make a decision. And so they're not confident in what they do and they don't hire well. And it it just, it trickles down. I mean, when you hire well as a leader, you know, you're always going to have talented people that want to come and work for you and do different things. Mm-hmm. It's if you are afraid to hire somebody better than you because you don't want to get passed up or you don't want somebody to push you out, you're not going to be successful. No, because you become the ceiling then. No, nothing is ever going to get above where you're currently at. And you're, you're putting a cap on everybody. You become the floor. <laughs> it's yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah. it's so hard. I think it's a hard thing for people to reconcile with that leadership a lot of times means letting go of your own ego too, yeah. and allowing other people to not micromanaging, not doing more, not touching more and manipulating more and trying to be involved in everything. It's letting go and letting people thrive, letting people yeah. grow and, and, and lead. you know, you don't want people to feel stifled to make decisions. You don't yeah. want people feeling like they have to look to you to make a choice. You want to embolden people to make choices and to grow. And a lot of people out there can't do that. They no. really can't. It's hard. And it's challenging. I mean, when Scott moved from president to CEO of the Harris Blitzer, that was yeah. a real hard move for him because yeah. Scott loved change. to be in the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. He loved to be in the moment. He loved to be in day-to-day. He loved to walk through the sales floor and do different things and, and be mm-hmm. present. And for him to let go, that was really difficult. And I'm really proud of him. He's done a really good job. But again, because he hired such great people, yeah. He was able to. It was just, I'm not saying he wasn't able to. It was just hard because his heart was there. That's how, that's where he started. He loved the phone room. He loved those entry level people. He wanted to treat them as well as anybody else. Yeah. And so, but you know, he learned that it was time to step away and think about other things. Yeah. So you're someone who's obviously very connected in the industry. And a lot of that comes from your long-term experience, the different jobs you've had, the different locations you've worked at, the people you've worked with, who've gone on to work at other places. Mm-hmm. You've got this networking thing down because of your life experiences. What about for younger people? Well, you know, what do you see them doing right and doing wrong when it comes to the concept of networking and growing their own branches of connectivity? Their first thought about networking is, what can this person do for me? That's their first thought. And it's wrong. Yeah. Yep. It's what can we do for each other? How can I help this person? And they say to me, well, you know what? How can I help? You know, this guy's the, the, the CRO of a professional basketball team and I'm a grad student and you're saying this person's going to mentor me. How can I help that person? I said, well, you know what? You read the SBJ, you read articles, you do research. Maybe you find something and say, Hey, I, f- I came across this article and it seemed to me it's something you might be interested in because of this thing that you did and you passed the article along. Yep. Make it that simple. You mm-hmm. can do things just because you have time, but there has to be some level of reciprocity in a mentorship relationship. Has to be. Yep. No, I totally agree. And it's those little things too. It doesn't, a lot of times people think it has to be grandiose. Like what am I possibly going to give them? Like you may not change their life, but if you share something with them and say, Hey, I saw you guys broke attendance records. What was your process in getting there? You're having a, you're having a conversation. You're building a relationship. You're showing that you pay attention to what's going on in the industry. You're exchanging information. And that's, that's a better conversation to have with somebody than what can you do for me? You know? And, And it's when you come for me and you're not asking for something. Mm-hmm. That I value you more. Like this year yeah. I volunteered, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a column about think if I was in a classroom with my students during this pandemic, what would I do? You know, what would my teaching be? What projects would I do? And at the end of that, I said, Hey, I realize how hard this is for you. Um, if you want me to zoom in your classroom for, for class period, I'll do that. And I think yeah. I did 27 different schools. And I don't want anything from it. I just thought, I just feel like, it's hard. I wouldn't want to do it. Yep. You know, I don't think I would have enjoyed being on Zoom eight or nine hours a week every week with with my class times right. whatever how many classes I have. Yep. And then the same thing I with do. clients, you know. I know you can't yep. pay me, but listen, it doesn't mean I'm not interested in you. And I said, right. you know, how can I help? What can I do? I said, you're my client, whether you're writing me a check or not. 
So yeah. what can I do? What, how can I help? And so, you know, it, what do you value? I mean, that's, I value, I tell people all the time, I only work for people I like, you know, I left the NBA because I was working for people sometimes I didn't like. So now I only have clients that I like. And so mm-hmm. I feel vested in their success. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the, the way we should all kind of be guided. I hope that that's the case for more and more people. So one thing that's really bothered me lately is I think hiring is a very personal experience, mm-hmm. right? I want to see and talk to that person. I want to have an exchange. I really want to look through their information. I want to understand how they fit. I want to know what makes them tick. Like I want that personal interchange. Yes. And yet in our, in our world, so much of technology is stripped of that away. Like we get more applicant tracking systems. We get more keyword filters. We get more matching technology. Are we missing out on the high ceiling person who may not have everything dialed in yet and have the perfect skill set and match all the, the markers and have those keywords in there? I mean, I feel like in, in so often in the industry, people talk about, I want people with potential and the soft skills and the whatever, but then they go through a system that strips that out and just makes a decision based on yeah. hitting profile metrics. Are we missing people? Like, are we, it feels I like we so. are. I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, so let me just take it back to academics. You know, for 36 years, I've been reviewing applicants, people applying to go to the program. Yeah. I remember when I was at Ohio State, I had a guy with a four point and almost a perfect DMAT. He came to the interview and I thought he was a disaster. He's asking me if he could get autographs when he's in the locker room. Well, I didn't take him. And I got questioned by the dean why I didn't take him because he met all the metrics for admission. And I yeah. go, I have different metrics for success. And I said, if I'm only going to have 30 students, I want the 30 that are going to be successful. And I said, I don't think this guy's going to be successful. So when, when I went to you know UMass, we always did personal interviews. UCF, we did personal interviews. And then when I went to USF, I added a step and I added a video to the application process. And I said, you know, do a video from do a video telling me about you and why you why you want to come to grad school, what you think you're going to get out of. But tell me something about you. And I had, you know, if you think about it, you know, on paper, that's one dimensional. I'm going to see what you've done. You know, it's the old Jackie Robinson thing. You know, I, I look at the dash. 1972 to 1976, what happened on that dash? What did you do between 1972 and 1976? Yeah. You know, but this video gives you an opportunity to bring it to life. So I had a, I had a young woman in uh, the second class and she worked at Bush Gardens and she was in the entertainment industry. So she filmed her video at Bush Gardens and she said, you know, I've been trying to figure out my life. Sometimes I feel like I'm going around in circles. And she was in a ride that was going around in circles. And okay, good. My yeah. share of ups and downs, and she's on a roller coaster. Yeah. And I was thinking, wow, I want that person. I want that person. Yeah. I don't care about anything else. But the way they think and the creative as they are, um, you know, look at look at Laura's. Ask Laura to see her video that she submitted. So oh, I will now. Trust me. I was already writing that down. I want to see it. Yeah. And what hooked me on Laura was Laura was Rocky. She was mm-hmm. the mascot at USF. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? That's a hard job. Yeah. You know, you've got to be comfortable in your skin and you've got to be comfortable in another skin. Yeah. And you've got to do all these things. So I was intrigued with her right away. Then when the costume comes off, 
and you see this dynamite woman with a lot of drive and passion and enthusiasm, mm-hmm. say to yourself, wow, <laughs> this is perfect. I can do something with yeah. it. Sky's the limit. Exactly. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that personal touch to it. I do feel like so often in hiring, we're missing some of that. I hope we can get back to that. You know, as much as technology is helpful and great and whatever, I get it. Sometimes you just need to remember we're a relationship industry. And I think that's really important to remember. And and we're a communication industry and it's how you communicate. And Zooming challenging. Yeah, it's challenging. I did focus groups on Zoom, which I'd never done before. And yeah. I thought, okay, you know, this is hard, but at the at one hand, I've got 12 faces on my screen all at once. So when I say something, I can just, I don't have to turn around trying to look at the room. I can just look right. at it and I can see 12 different reactions. So there's positives and there's negatives. Mm-hmm. I just think you have to understand the limitations of each format or each situation that you're trying to deal with. And yeah. I understand that, you know, like I don't believe in test scores. I, I think the GMAT and the GRE are worthless. You know, if I want to predict it for grad school, I only have to look at what you did in math and what you did in science in your, in your, in your college days. And if you had a D, you're going to struggle in grad school. And if you didn't, you won't. And so That's after great. we took a person at UCF that had a 400 GMAT, which is half. Yeah. Never take. Okay, never. She had a four point. I got her a job two days after she graduated. Yeah. She's been in the industry and been really productive ever since. You know, if I go by the metrics, she doesn't get in. But if I go by what is she really like? Yeah. Hey, my first two, my first three semesters in in college, when I went away to Oklahoma State at 17 years old, Mm -hmm. I had a one, two, a one, six, and a one, eight. All right. And look at you now. Look at me now. (laughs) <laughs> the first year I made mistakes. Somebody said, well, if you don't go three times in a row, they drop you from the rolls. Well, guess what? They don't. Yeah. So I didn't go to my English class was at seven 30 in the morning. So I didn't go to English class three times in a row. And I thought I got, I dropped and I didn't, I got an F in English. Mm-hmm. And the next semester I took uh, the advanced standing exam for English and passed that English course, the next one and the next one. So I get nine credits off of a test. It wasn't I was stupid. It was I didn't. I took somebody. I was stupid, and I listened to somebody yeah. when I didn't know what it was. Trusted the wrong person, yeah. right? So yeah. you know, I'm not. You know, and then I think that there's uh, there's a life before the light bulb goes off, and there's a light after the light bulb goes off. Yeah, and your performance is according to that. You'll find out. Somebody said, when did you know what you wanted to do? Mm-hmm. And I said, I was in my 50s when I knew I wanted to teach and consult. Yeah. And when I was just working full time, I missed the students. And I was just with the students. I missed the excitement of working in the industry. So mm-hmm. when I was able to combine the two, I was the happiest I've ever been. Yeah, it's and a journey. The beneficiary of that was my students, because if you look at all the students I placed, probably 50 percent of them work for somebody that I worked for. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of yeah. benefit there. Yeah, there sure is. This is incredible. It's been such a great conversation. I want to finish up with this. I read one of your SBJ columns, Sutton Impact columns from 10 years ago, because I am a bit of a dork and I wanted to go back through some of your past stuff. Okay. Um, what stood out to me was 10 years ago, you were writing about a commitment to diversity. Mm-hmm. And fast forward to today, this is still a topic as a society, not just as a sports industry, 
that we are not fully committed to. Why? Why haven't we made more progress? I know we have made progress. Sure. No doubt. There's a lot of things that are better now. And it's not fair for me to even make that judgment or that statement. But it, on a surface level, from what I'm able to see and from talking to people, things are better. But it feels like not there yet. What's going on here? They're better. But at the end of the day, the hiring decision is often the person you're most comfortable with. And the person you're most comfortable with is probably the person you have the most in common with. Yeah. Other Rather than the person that you have the least in common with that might have totally different ideas than you have. And that's the person you should consider more than, than you should, than you, than you have in the past. So when I have people all the time tell me I'm looking for diversity candidates, I say, well, yeah, I, I've got some. And in the interview, oh, yeah, she was phenomenal. Phenomenal. She finished second. Oh, okay. Well, when you finish second three or four times, you got a question, was it the Rooney rule? Yeah. Was it the Rooney rule? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's checking the box, that's, yep. a bad, that's a bad statement. And I tell, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, when you hire true diversity, you're not just looking at the team photo. You're looking at the team ideology. You're looking at somebody that's going to come in here, challenge your thinking, offer you a different perspective. And you've got to be comfortable with that. You can't just say, yeah, look at my, look at the team photo here. Look how diverse we are. If, Hey, listen, if everybody went to the same colleges, how diverse really are you? You know? So if you hire somebody that went to, you know, like I loved the fact this past NBA all-star game, they were tied into the HBCUs. Yep. Love that. Yep. Yes. Um, And I had a student at uh, USF one year. He was the diversity. Okay, one kid that went to Howard. Yeah. And it affected me and my faculty dramatically because to go from an HBCU where everybody looks like you to come into a class where nobody looks like you, we all got that message. Yeah. We got that message. And so our recruiting changed and what we did changed. And this whole thing in Seattle is going to be the same way. We're tied into the HBCUs and we're going to recruit the HBCUs and we're going to recruit other schools as well. But, you know, if you really want diversity, you got to take a chance sometimes. I mean, the diverse candidate might not match up to exactly what you have, but you want, if you want diversity and you see the potential of the person, go with the diversity and, and coach the person up and you're going to be better off. Yeah, it's proven. I mean, data, data proves it that diverse workplaces are more productive workplaces, period. So if you need a business case, if you don't want just an emotional, like morality case, use a business case, who cares? Right. If you can make, if you can, you can make the argument cleanly, clearly that these diverse workforces, diverse workforces are more productive. They're greater environments. They're better culture. They're more endearing. And that works. Like there's millions of reasons it should happen. And none I can think of that it shouldn't. So I don't know, just the direction we need to continue to push. And the factor that exacerbates diversity hiring is a a PR nightmare. It's a blow up. Something bad. You did something wrong. You did something bad. You made a bad decision. And now you're going to, now you're going to look at diversity to help rectify it. Right. Look at the, look at the Ray Rice situation in the NFL. 
It's all reactive. The yep. Punishment that was meted out. You have to say to yourself, hmm, I wonder if there was a woman in that room helping make that decision. Yeah. You have to ask yourself that question because it was a bad decision. Yeah. So what happens afterwards? You hire some, you hire some women to get some diversity and you do that, but you didn't have to make the mistake in the first place. Mm-hmm. If you were really interested in being a great organization and being really representative of the population that follows your games, then you're going to, diversity is going to be natural. It's not going to be something you have to do. It's going to be exactly something right. you do. Yep. And that's where we have to get. We have to get from something I have to do to something that's something just done. We look, we look for, we look at everybody and see who we're going to have. I love it. It's a great way to end this conversation. Thank you, Dr. Sutton, for coming on. We've covered a lot of topics here. I think this was a really meaty conversation. I hope we can do it again sometime because I think we probably could, uh, we could probably dig into some more topics, don't you think? Oh, I'd love to. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to Doc Sutton for coming on the show. I enjoyed that conversation so much, and I hope you did as well. There's nothing that's off limits with him. We can talk about anything, and he's going to have an intelligent well thought out answer and discussion. And I love that about him. I love being able to just throw anything at him and he can handle it. The guy's got such incredible experience and background and connectivity to the industry. It's not just that he's done it. It's that he's taught it. It's not just that he's taught it. It's that he's done it. It's like he's got the total package. So it was great having him on. And he's just so caring about the people that he, I mean, you heard him. He's reciting stories from years ago about people that he helped teach, mentor, guide, whatever. I love that. All these people in his life that he's come in contact with have made an indelible mark and he will never forget them and they'll never forget him. Thank you for listening, everybody. I will talk to you all next week. 